Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Ian Abernethy Podcast. You can watch videos and listen to other podcast episodes by visiting www.ianabernethy.com. So, without further ado, here's Ian Abernethy. Hello, everyone. I'm Ian Abernethy, and welcome to the ianabernethy.com podcast. Uh, this month, we've got a couple of topics for you, but before we discuss that, just a couple of quick bits of news, a couple of reminders. Uh, the first one is just to remind people you can find all the details of my upcoming seminars on the website under the Seminar Dates section. Uh, and if you want them sent to you directly, then obviously if you're a newsletter a subscriber, that will happen. And you can, if you're not a newsletter subscriber, just go to ianabernethy.com, click on Join the Newsletter and... You can subscribe uh, that way. And the reason I mention this is I get lots of requests from people asking, you know, when are you next teaching in, in this part of the world and so on. And if you want to know, then that's, you know, the easy way to do it because then I'll, especially if you join the newsletter, I'll send the details straight to you. Uh, the other bit of news is uh, with regards to the WCA, which is the World Combat Association, which, you know, is the uh, international uh, group that uh, I'm running and playing a big part in along with uh, Peter Constantine and Jeff Thompson and others. Um, and what I've done is I've recently added some more videos up there uh, to the uh, members section and the instructors section. We just added a 60 minute long video on the detailed applications and training methods associated with Pinan Godan. So this is stuff that's exclusive to members and I've got some uh, material on multiple opponents I'm adding and there's loads of other stuff I've added in the past as well. So um, if you're a WCA member, just obviously sign at the World Combat Association website and you can see all that. And if you're not and you'd like to be, then just pop along to the website and click on the how to join bit and because uh, you can join as your group or as an individual and there's lots of different options to get access to that material. Um, okay, so the topics then, all right, the topics for this month's podcast. Uh, the first one, we're going to discuss uh, why I think kata is important, why it's necessary. You know, because the argument sometimes made, look, you know, if you're doing the bunkai, why just not do the applications, just do the techniques with the partner and stop practicing the kata? Why do the solo practice? And I believe there's a very good case for practicing the kata solo um, from for people who come from those kind of systems. Um, so I wrote this on the website. It was a kind of like a forum post, uh, which I shared via Facebook and Twitter. And it got a huge response, which is quite surprising because it only took me like five minutes to write over coffee in the morning. But um, So I thought I'd include that in the podcast, seeing as people seem to like it. So it's, that's the first little bit. And it's about seven minutes long or something. It's not that long. And the second part, we're going to discuss uh, practical dough. And what I mean by that is we often talk about the practical application of the martial arts. And when we do that, we're often talking about the physical side of it, you know, um, self-defense or um, actual fighting side of it. Um, but, of course, there's another side of the martial arts, which is, you know, making our lives better. I always divide them up as uh, being the life-enhancing side of martial arts, as well as the life-preserving combative side, if you like. And I think that needs to be practical too. We need to identify methods in which we are going to make our lives better. So what I've done in this podcast is I've uh, discussed the case for practical dough and then I've drawn out one topic in line with that thinking, which is fate, which may sound like a, an odd thing to discuss on the, the podcast, but fate is something that's always been at the forefront of the mind of uh, warrior cultures. You can look at, you know, um, the Vikings, the Spartans, the Samurai, you know, there's this idea of, you know, fate or, or um, 
the way that we kind of approach combat and life and i wanted to kind of explore that in the uh, the podcast so something a little bit unusual but hopefully you'll find it uh, of interest and obviously i discussed its relationship to the martial arts and then uh, how we can use the lessons of the martial arts to understand the workings of fate so that we can then act in accordance with them to make you know the world a better place um, something a bit unusual, but I hope you enjoy it. And of course, I welcome your, uh, your feedback on it. So uh, I think that's enough for this introduction. So we'll discuss the uh, first part of it, which is the case for Kata. Okay, so as we said in the introduction, this first part of the podcast, we're going to discuss some of the reasoning behind kata and what uh, benefit kata as a solo practice can uh, can bring now of course you know this as i said uh, this developed off a topic on the forum uh, people really seem to have liked it and that's why i decided to include it in the uh, the podcast but you know we need to be clear you know people who do styles without kata do manage fine without it that there's not a um, a necessity to do to do kata but the question's asked you know well why do it? Why, 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 what benefits does it bring? Why can't we just practice the techniques that we use in Bunkai with a practice partner? Um, why don't we just get rid of the solo form altogether? So these are kind of 10 uh, points that I, I, I wrote on the forum to answer that question and to say why I personally have chosen to go the, um, the Kata route. So the point one was that I personally like to feel uh, part of something greater than myself. And kata gives me that sense of belonging to a tradition, and that appeals to me. So, as I've said, you know, many times before, this is actually quite important practically, because one of the most important things uh, when it comes to effectiveness is lots and lots of practice. And people are far more likely to practice something they enjoy. So enjoying the art that you practice is vital if effectiveness is ever going to be achieved. So while the sense of belonging to that uh, tradition may not appeal to everyone, it does appeal to me and those like me. And I'm uh, a better martial artist as a result. So it's kind of first point, you know, kata for me gives me that sense of belonging to a tradition. Point two is if you think about it, we practice every technique that we do incorrectly during partner practice. Uh, we want to practice techniques that can hurt and disable but we practice them in a safe way so nobody gets hurt. So the way we practice runs contrary to our objective, and that's the case in all martial arts. Compromises are made in the name of safety. Now, kata gives us the chance to visualize, with movement, applying the techniques with true intent. If you only ever do a partner practice, then you can miss out on this opportunity. A kata gives us a chance to fill that gap. Now, visualization, of course, is highly studied and it's a proven vehicle for enhancing performance. And as kata practitioners, we have that built into the system. And we have a chance to perform the techniques with uh, mental and physical intensity that wouldn't be possible in partner practice. Now, combine partner practice with solo kata and the whole thing becomes complete and balanced, in my view. So the intentional faults in partner practice, for safety's sake, they're mitigated through full intensity visualization linked with the corresponding physical motions. So the third point is, uh, kata provides a chain of continuity of information through the generations. So if you abandon kata, then you break that chain. So I've always thought of kata as being the syllabus, really, of, of, of karate, and it means that you could lose the syllabus. 
um, if you would abandon karate, uh, abandon kata, it would no longer be set and consistent. So that's the other important point, is that chain of information. Uh, the fourth point is, in my view, teaching the applications in the order presented by the kata is a very logical progression. Kata provides underlying order, and losing the kata could mean disordered training, unless you know it was replaced with another order. And personally, I'm totally happy with the order the kata provides, so I see no reason to reinvent the wheel. Uh, point five, there are times when we don't have a partner to practice with. So kata provides us with a form of supplementary solo training that's fully consistent and coherent with the bunkai-based partner drills and sparring that will be done when we do have partners to train with. So solo practice and partner practice are therefore strongly integrated, and I believe this leads to faster progress. Uh, point six, so away from the bunkai applications, kata is great for teaching structure, posture, breathing, body control, body awareness, and so on. Now, in modern martial arts, this is not as valued as once it was, and I think this is part of why we see falling standards in some areas. Now, as I say to my own students, you know, if you can't control your own body, then you stand no chance of being able to control somebody else's. So Kata teaches these vital components in a way that other forms of solo training, as vital as they are, just simply don't do. So, I mean, Kata's good for that too. It's, a, it's a good for teaching that body awareness, structure, breathing, and these are all vitally important as well. So uh, point seven is, you know, statistically, we're far more likely to die of things like heart disease and stress than physical violence. So kata is all-consuming in that when we do it correctly, we don't so much do the kata, but we are the kata. Now, this high level of mindfulness has been shown to reduce stress, and in some studies has shown to be as effective in treating depression as drugs. Kata can therefore not only preserve life, but it can enhance it too. It can keep us mentally and physically healthy. Uh, point eight is kata needs absolutely no equipment. So as someone who travels a lot, I can, you know, I can't always hit the bag, I can't always lift weights, but all I need is a little space and I can practice kata. I can get a good workout and support my partner training as well. Uh, point nine, you know, the best way to record physical techniques is in a physical medium. So despite advances in technology, kata remains the best way to record techniques. You know, the external appearance of a technique can be recorded on film or in photographs or whatever, but the internal nuances, the feeling of the motion, that can only be experienced through motion. So that internal side of the techniques recorded in kata in a way that you can't do it with, you know, DVDs or videos or whatever else. So kata is therefore a far better way for a martial artist to record their methods. And point 10, you know, is kata and bunkai are fun. You know, I, I, I enjoy them. I enjoy the the puzzle of it, the kind of almost that like cracking of the code. Um, uh, I find it, you know, a hugely enjoyable way to kind of practice. I like that feeling of walking in the steps of the, the old masters and communicating with those old masters by studying the things that they created. You know, so there's other things I can write as well. But, you know, for me, the bottom line is that, you know, Kata provides a central pole that holds up everything else I do. Take it away and the whole thing sags and collapses. Now, I would not practice kata if I did not feel it was a valuable use of precious training time, you know. I'm not one for practicing anything for its own sake. There's loads of things that I've abandoned, you know, as, we've, as I've gone on. But kata provides so much benefit that, you know, that I'm a great believer in it. Now, none of this is to say that those who have gone another route are wrong. I don't feel the need to kind of proselytize about kata. And I'm not saying that those who currently don't do kata must adopt it because I know many do just fine without it. You know, many of my training partners don't use kata. 
However, I know that kata has been hugely beneficial to me and mine, and hence it's something I see as vital to my own practice and teaching. I mean, they do say, you know, that there are many paths up the mountain, but we all see the same view from the top. Now, the route up the mountain I've used has kata as a vital part of it. Um, this is a climb I know, and this is a climb I've experienced. So others will have their own path, but I don't want to get stuck halfway up the mountain by letting go of the rope that has taken me this far. Now, so these are the reasons that kata is part of what I do. I don't think it needs to be a part of what everyone else does, but I find it hugely beneficial for me and mine, and that's why I'll continue to practice it. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, obviously, as I said, that was written in response to a uh, discussion on the forum. Um, it didn't take me long to write at, at all, and obviously there's lots of side topics we could uh, explore in, in more depth off there. But I hope you found that interesting. Again, lots of people seem to like it when I wrote it, so I thought an audio version might go down uh, well too. So if there's any specific bits on there you'd like to see me explore further, you know, just drop me a line and get hold of me in the usual way. So the next point we're going to discuss is this uh, practical dough. Okay, so just set the case for that and then look at fate and a warrior's view of fate and how fate, uh, I don't think is a mystical, magical thing, but it's something that as practical martial artists, I think we need to have a good understanding of. And I believe that the martial arts can give us that understanding so that not only are we more capable warriors, not only are we better martial artists, but we're better people too. So, um, yeah, I hope you enjoy this. And, um, okay, this this part's you know, a little bit longer, about 25 minutes or so, or something like that. So get a cup of coffee and settle in, and I'll now hand you over to myself to discuss uh, a warrior's view of fate. This is a podcast dedicated to the practical use of the martial arts. As practical martial artists, we don't accept appeals to authority or tradition as being a worthwhile measure, but instead we measure everything by effect. The martial arts have many aspects, of course, and I believe that our pragmatic approach, our way of thinking, needs to expand beyond the combative life-preserving aspects to also inform our thinking on the life-enhancing or character development aspects of the martial arts. For me, there always needs to be a demonstrable method behind any training regime. So, for example, if we're talking about kata, the claim that enough practice will lead to combative skill through some unidentified process, as is so often the claim, isn't tenable. However, through the study of Bunkai, we can see how the techniques and the combative principles they manifest can be utilised in partner practice and live training to develop proven combative skill. Uh, one approach doesn't identify the process that will lead to the proposed end result, and the other one does, and that process can be followed and will consistently yield results. Therefore, I would say one is practical and one is impractical. Now, a similar situation exists with the doe, or the character development side of the art. The claim is frequently made that the martial arts will develop character and enhance a practitioner's day-to-day -day life, but you know, what's the process? How does that work? Um, just as how the practice of kata, without identifying and making use of a practical process, will not automatically result in combative skill, the practice of the martial arts will not automatically lead to development of character. Now, I think this is pretty self-evident. If you look at the behaviour of some of the martial artists more well-known, in some cases notorious practitioners, we can all see 
senior people who are well-balanced, compassionate, honourable, uh, and who display great integrity in all that they do. But we also have insecure, violent, egotistical, dishonest people who hold high ranks as well. You know, and sadly, we've even some high-ranking practitioners who've been convicted of, you know, terrible crimes. So just as the practice of the martial arts doesn't automatically lead to the development of combative skill, the practice of the martial arts does not automatically lead to development of character. To make the martial arts function in combat, we need to approach them in a practical way. So just as we need people to can, uh, consider what practical jitsu actually involves, we also need them to consider what practical do would also involve. Now, as I've said many times in these podcasts, I don't see do and jitsu as being competing, mutually exclusive entities, but the part of a synergistic whole. To me, the martial arts should be both life-preserving, in terms of both providing health and combative skill, and they should be life-enhancing, i.e. making the life that I'm preserving a good life for both myself and those around me. So if you listen to the Jitsu versus Do podcast that we did on this a few years ago, we'll explore that in greater depth, and that's still available on ianabernethy.com, as all the podcasts are. Anyway, for now, I simply want to point out that as practical martial artists, we need to be practical about both the Do and the Jitsu, because it's my view that either one alone is insufficient and incomplete. Now, Kano, who was the founder of Judo and arguably the leading proponent of the, the Do ethos, he expressed this very well when he talked about the three levels of Judo. Now, I would suggest that these three levels apply not only to Judo, but also all holistic martial arts, i.e. Budo as a whole. So firstly, we have lower level Budo, which is the effective use of the martial arts in combat. Now, I don't think you can skip this level any more than you can build the upper floors of a building without first building the foundation and the ground floor. This is the Jitsu, and it needs to be solid, practical, and functional. You know, you can't skip that. Next, we've got a middle level Budo, where we make use of the lessons and experiences of our combative training to make us physically and mentally stronger, in addition to utilizing introspection to make us aware of our personal traits so we can become more rounded human beings. And finally, we have upper-level Budo, which is where we use the lessons we've learned to live a better life and to be of greater service to our friends, our family, and our community. Now, I like this model because it's simple, and it shows how the Jitsu and Do are not opposites, but part of the, you know, the entirety of the martial arts. So, you know, these podcasts have been running for the best part of six years, and in that time, you know, we tend to discuss the uh, the practical aspects of the, uh, the jitsu side of things. So, anyway, today I thought we'd kind of have a look at the practical part of Do, you know, which we've talked about before, but obviously we tend to focus on the jitsu. Um, so often, as well, I find that the, the Do side of the art is linked to culturally specific, quasi-spiritual, ethereal concepts. Um, which, you know, don't always resonate with people. And this leads to unidentified, just practice and it will come thinking. And we know that's impractical and rarely delivers results. So I think there's a much more down-to-earth approach to the life-enhancing side of things that's pragmatic, identifiable, and that everyone can make use of. You know, because I think that martial arts training provides an intense environment where we can learn many lessons and develop many attributes that have practical applications to our lives outside the dojo. One thing we can learn in the mini-universe that is the dojo is the workings of fate. Um, and that's an element I want to explore, um, explore today. So um, fate is defined by, uh, in the online dictionary I've just, just used, as the development of events outside a person's control 
regarded as determined by a supernatural power. So the development of events outside a person's control regarded as de predetermined or determined by a supernatural power. Um, it's then of course this you know fate's also frequently linked to religious concepts such of uh, karma or destiny. So while these supernatural views of fate are certainly held to be true by those who hold to those religions and worldviews, I'd like to put forward a more everyday view of fate that can be seen both in the dojo and in our everyday lives. And now when we recognise and understand the process, I feel we can disregard the dictionary definition. We can realise that we have a large amount of control over our own fate. And through our martial practice, we can learn to shape what lies ahead of us in life to our own advantage. Warrior thinking. Um, so fate's something that's been discussed and debated for eons by many great thinkers, with no firm conclusions yet been reached. <laughs> so it should be pretty obvious that you know there's no firm conclusions going to be reached in this podcast. Um, as with all the podcasts, it's my personal take on things. So you know, please feel free to utilise or disregard as you see fit. So I think, you know, and make the podcast as interesting as we can, a good place to start with discussing the general idea of fate would be with the the fates themselves. So one of my passions, it's a passion I share with uh, my younger son, is mythology. I like mythology, I always have liked mythology, I find it really interesting. Uh, and the fates were, in Greek mythology were said to be uh, three beings responsible for, uh, for the fate of human beings and even the gods were subject to their uh, decrees. So very powerful, you know, beings in the Greek mythology. And now on one level, mythology gives us fantastic stories of gods and monsters and heroes. And these are hugely entertaining stories that have been retold throughout time and have stood the test of time. Uh, but on another level, we need to acknowledge that the cultures of the past based their lives, their values and their societies around these myths and vice versa. You know, the culture gave rise to the myth and the myths give rise to the culture. They kind of support one another. So, I don't know, but it should be obvious that these myths are not true. You know, <laughs> I mean, you know, we use the modern, today we use the word myth as something that's not true. You know, they're not true as science and they're not true as history. The events the myths contain never really happened. You know, we know that lightning, for example, is the discharge of electrical energy as opposed to Zeus enacting his wrath. But, you know, the myths of the ancient world, they're therefore untrue as science or history. But I think they do hold truth as poetry, as metaphor, as psychology. Uh, people made up these tales to express a perceived truth in a way that's often difficult to express in other ways. Now, I'm not sure, but I think it was a psychologist, Jung, who said that myths were the collective dreams of a people and that the dreams were personal myths. In fact, you know, many of the psychological terms we use today come from mythology. You know, I think of narcissism, you know, from the tale of Narcissus and the Oedipus complex and things like these. These are terms that we use in psychology today, but have their origins in mythology. Anyway, the point is that these tales can be good ways of illuminating aspects of the relationship between the conscious and subconscious mind, as well as expressing through metaphor the operation of the world around us. Now we should interact with that world to best effect. So as I said, in Greek mythology, there were three fates, and these were female beings who were said to spin the fate of a person's life, right? And the names, which I you know, apologise now because <laughs> getting my Cumbrian tongue around Greek names is never easy. So Clotho was one of the um, uh, uh, fates, and that translates as the spinner. You've got Lachitis, that's bound to be pronounced wrong, but that, uh, that was the allotter. And you've got uh, Atropos, 
um, who was uh, means unturning. So basically, you can see what we've got here is so um, the first one, Clotho, they spun the thread of a man's fate, right? Um, like Chichisa, however you pronounce it, that was the allotter. They would determine the length, how long a person's life was going to be. And the final one, which I won't try to butcher again by pronouncing, but Otropos or something like that, um, means unturning. That was the one that cut the thread. So you can see this, you know, that when a man's life ended. Now there's a very close uh, parallel with this, so they may have had a common origin either. I'm not, you know, don't know enough about mythology to know, but um, there's the close parallel in the mythology of Northern Europe, which uh, these were beings called the Norns, and again the three of them, and they were female, and they were also said to weave the uh, the web of fate. And their names, which are a little easier to pronounce, are Erd, Verandi, and Skuld. And what their names translate as is Erd means that which has happened, or the past. And you've got Verandi, which is the middle one, which means that which is happening. And you've got Skuld, which means that which is owed. Okay, so I, I, this, I think this is an interesting model, so we'll come back to that anyway. But the names I've just given were the Norse versions of those names. You know, that's the one in the, like, the Viking mythology, if you like. In Old English, uh, Erd was called Weird. Spelt W-Y-R-D. And weird is the Old English equivalent of fate. Um, it's also the origin of the modern English word weird as in W-E-I-R-D. So whereas nowadays weird means out of the ordinary, in the past it meant the unfolding of fate. And these three beings were also the inspiration by uh, behind Shakespeare's three weird sisters in the play Macbeth. So anyway, so from these ancient worldviews, we can see that fate was seen as having three aspects, um, roughly equivalent to the past, the present, and the future. Now, one of the oldest references to weird comes from the old English poem Beowulf, um, which I love that poem, um, and it's actually one of the uh, oldest bits of writing in English, the oldest writing in English that we have. Now, uh, there's a line in there where the hero of the poem, Beowulf himself, says, uh, weird will often save a man if his courage holds. And if those of you have seen the film uh, 13th Warrior, um, which is very loosely based around Beowulf and some other kind of tales from uh, Norse mythology, if you like, then um, it, the main character in that says the same thing. He says, fate will often save a man if his courage holds. So, but anyway, weird will often save a man if his courage holds. Um, so this tells us that those who composed that poem didn't see fate as being fixed. And it could be influenced by one's actions and one's mind, mindset, you know. So fate wasn't something that was fixed. I mean, if it was, then your courage couldn't change it, you know. So he says, you know, weird will often save a man if his courage holds. Um, and something similar is also echoed by the uh, the Greek thinker Heraclitus. I mean, he said a, uh, a man's character is his fate. And that's one of my all-time favourite sayings, you know, so... Our character determines our actions in any given circumstance, and hence fate and character are obviously intimately linked. So let's have a look at what these tales tell us about the workings of fate as the ancients saw it. Now, first, we can see that fate has three aspects that work together to determine what will happen in a person's life. Uh, the first of these is the past, that which has happened. And no, the past is the past and we cannot change it. Uh, what we can determine is the present moment, so that which is happening. But with the smallest possible passage of time, the action in the present falls into the domain of the past. So analogy, an analogy we can use is, if you think of driving a car at speed towards a brick wall, 
if you keep your foot on the accelerator, all those present moments where you have your foot on the accelerator fall into the past and give a momentum of past events. There will come a point when, no matter how hard you hit the brakes or what you do, the car's going to smash into that wall. It's inescapable at that point. Uh, the present becomes the past and the momentum of past events creates a future that is inescapable or that which is owed. Um, but that doesn't mean we're inevitably destined to hit the wall though. So if we start again, you could change the future by applying the brakes sooner. So these, those present moments when you have your foot on the brake, as opposed to the accelerator, will consist of deceleration. You'll be slowing down. So the momentum of past events will then lead to a future where the car will stop before it hits the wall. So fate then, following this view of it, is the momentum of past events. And those past events are determined, in part, by what we do in the present moment. And that momentum of past events will determine the future, which can become inescapable, for better or for worse, with enough momentum. Either way, our future is determined by the momentum of our past, which is in turn determined by what we do in the moment. You know, that ever-fleeting tiny sliver of time that is now. As martial artists, we have direct experience of this in the dojo. When fighting, we know that we need to be fully aware of the now. We know that it's our actions in the now that determine whether we'll be successful or whether we'll fail, whether we'll win or whether we'll lose, or in combat, whether we'll live or whether we'll die. We also experience the action of fate in the dojo on the longer term as well. So every time we train in the now, we build up a momentum of training, a momentum of the past that will lead to a future where we're fitter and more skilled. Every time we miss training in the now, we help create a momentum of past events that will hold us back and lead to a future where we're less fit and less able. Every time we're fully present in the now and perform a good technique, we help create a future where good technique is more likely, you know, perhaps even inevitable. Every time we're not fully present in the now and perform a bad technique as a result, we help create a momentum of past events where poor technique is more likely. If we train in an effective way in the now, we create a momentum of past events which will lead to a future where we're likely to function effectively. If we consistently train in an ineffective way, we create a momentum of past events where we're likely to function ineffectively. As martial artists, we experience the importance of the now and the process of fate in the dojo all the time. However, we need to employ careful observation and introspection so we can note this process and then work effectively with it both inside and outside of the dojo. The lesson is there to be seen and experienced, but we need to bring it out and underline it so people can utilize these lessons outside of the dojo to enhance their lives and the lives of those around them. Now, to give some everyday examples, now, if a person wanted to be a world-class musician, then every now that they spend in practice, they are creating a momentum of past events which will make that future more likely. It's also entirely possible that they'll reach a point where such a future becomes inevitable. You know, now, if a person wanted to be a professional writer, then to create the future they want, they need to utilize the now. Use the now to practice their writing, to contact agents, to submit work to publishers and so on. The momentum of these events can create a fate where being a professional writer is more likely. It works negatively too. So if a person was supposed to smoke a packet of cigarettes every day, then they're creating a momentum of past events which is likely to create a future of uh, ill health and premature death. 
A person who takes good care of themselves is creating a momentum of past events that is more likely to create a good future of you know, long life and good health. So it should be noted that fate was always viewed as something that was in play both before and after the lifetime of a given individual. That's how the ancients saw it. So the actions of one's ancestors determined a momentum of past events that one was born with. So likewise, a person's own actions would have an impact on the fate of their descendants. It's for this reason that we often see the cultures of the past uh, place a huge emphasis on honour and seeking immortality through the influence of one's deeds. You know, particularly we see that among the warrior classes. You know, the Greeks, the Vikings, the samurai, etc. all shared this trait. Whereas in today's culture we see a huge emphasis on individuality, in the past there was a great emphasis on community and family. People knew they depended upon one another for survival and prosperity. Um, the best life a person could live is one that served their community and their descendants, and that honoured and built upon the good deeds of their ancestors. You know, we can see this in the samurai codes of Bushido and the worldview and the ethics of their European equivalents. Indeed, you know, we see it in many cultures the world over. Now, I would suggest that because life back then was far shorter and far more precarious, it had the result of making people look beyond their own individual life to the lives of the community and the health of the community as a whole. So our modern day lack of intimacy with death creates a willful denial of death. People don't really talk about it or think about it. And that's maybe what leads to a greater focus on the individual. You know, we live as if we're going to live forever. However, the point is that our fate is also determined by the events of those that came before us. I mean, I live a healthy lifestyle, but my personal ancestors have bequeathed to me a likelihood of dying young. You know, my great-granddad died in his 40s, my granddad died in his early 50s, and my father's one of the very few Abernethys to live beyond 60, and he's had a triple heart bypass. So while my actions in the now can help influence my fate, the momentum of my genetic past may remain the determining factor. Um, it should also be noted as well, the ancient Greeks and the Northern Europeans, they used the metaphor of creating strands and weaving to poetically describe fate. And I think this is because the individual threads influence one another. They're all matted together. Everyone's fate is related. So uh, now while we can have a huge influence of our, over our own future fate through our actions in the now, other people's acts and omissions, indeed the actions of the natural world even, can also have an influence on our fate. So, you know, to give an example, if a maintenance engineer of a plane that I was due to get on severely messed it up such that the plane was not really airworthy and nobody spotted it, um, now he will create a momentum of events that will lead to my demise through no fault of my own. Now also, if I was to get caught in some kind of natural disaster, then my demise is my fate. But it was the natural world that primarily created that momentum and there would have been little I could have done about it. So while we have control over our fate, we don't have complete control over our fate. It's interwoven with, you know, the land that we occupy and everybody else's. And the ancients of the past fully understood this. Um, however, whatever you were born into, you would accept as your fate. And from there, you would do all you could to redirect the momentum of events for your own benefit and the benefit of those who came after you. If circumstances beyond your control conspired to bring about your demise, then you'd also accept that as your fate. You'd go down honourably while still swinging, but no matter how hopeless it seemed. Now, as Beowulf said, you know, fate will often save a man if his courage holds. It was acknowledged that fate was a force more powerful than, than anything, as say even the gods were subject to it. 
Um, and if your fate was a negative one through no fault of your own, then there was great honour to be found in bravely facing it head on. Um, now, you know, like mythology, as I've said, you know, I've used these ones because I think they illustrate, you know, fate. Um, they come from warrior cultures, if you like. And because nobody actively believes in these mythologies anymore, you know, so I'm therefore not at risk of misrepresenting or unintentionally offending anybody if I was to um, utilise, you know, modern day religion, you see. So, uh, But one parallel I'd like to quickly touch on is that of karma. So I apologise in advance if anyone feels I'm not representing karma correctly. You know, but uh, my understanding of karma is that it's viewed as like a, a supernatural force. Um, that essentially rewards good actions and punishes evil actions, either in this life or in subsequent lives. Now, there's no way to prove that or disprove it either. Um, I would, however, suggest that once you get rid of the mythology that's used as metaphor and you put all that to one side, the concept of fate put forward in this podcast is not mystical and it doesn't really claim any supernatural content um, or component. You know, It's simply the observable link between cause and effect that becomes manifest through the passing of time you know so I, I therefore hope that everyone regardless of religion or worldview can get on board with this this concept um as i say it's just exactly that it's just cause and effect manifesting through time it's the way our universe works you know time goes in one direction and causes have effects it's, it's, it's very straightforward and very down to earth now, I started this section by pointing out how we need both the Do and the Jitsu parts of our art to be practical. Now, to do that, we need to identify the practical processes that will lead to our lives being enhanced through the practice of the martial arts. Uh, through our practice, we are constantly reminded of the importance of being in the now and how it's that action in the now that determines the future course of a fight. We also know how action in the now creates a momentum that will lead to a future of increased fitness and skill. We understand how the, you know, the momentum of regular training builds up, the momentum of past events. We'll learn how the, it's the now that creates the future, and we can take that lesson outside of the dojo. Uh, the future we want to live is not created in an instant. It's created by doing the right thing in many, many nows. And that creates a momentum which makes the future that we want all the more likely. So as modern day warriors, we understand our fate is not something we have no influence over. Um, while most create their fate unintentionally, the warrior shapes his fate. We don't hope for a good future or favourable circumstances, we create them. And when the things outside of our control conspire against us, we accept our fate and face it with courage and honour. Always remembering that fate may yet save us if our courage holds. You know, whatever hand we dealt, we'll play it as best we can. You know, we aim to create a better future, not just for ourselves, but for those around us. As the legendary samurai Mitu Masashi said, the way of the warrior does not permit you to accept an inferior position to anything. So while fate is a powerful force, we seek to shape it and influence it through our hard-won understanding of how fate works. Uh, we know the past cannot be changed, that our power exists in the now, and that through actions in the now we create a momentum that will give us victory and success in the future. We accept that Heraclitus was right when he said a man's character is his fate. We know this is true because a man's character will determine how he acts in the now. So we seek to use the austerity of training as a mirror 
to reveal our strengths and weaknesses, and from there we can seek to improve our character. In line with Kano's three levels of judo, we can then develop ourselves, um, shift our fate through our actions in the now, and you know, better serve those around us. We influence their fate as well. So this is one aspect, I think, of practical Do. It's part of warrior thinking. And as such, it needs to be part of our everyday thinking if we're to be practical martial artists in an holistic sense. Well, we're almost at an end for uh, this month's podcast, but uh, thank you once again for listening in. Uh, as usual, big thanks to all of those who spread the word on these podcasts as well. I, you know, I really do appreciate it. So big thanks to everyone who's telling people about them and sharing them with uh, you know, your friends at the dojo. Also, as usual, big thanks to all those who are supporting you know, the books and the DVDs who are coming along to the seminars and the YouTube channel's doing incredibly well. So big thanks to everyone who's watching those videos and again, um, telling other people about them. We've added a lot there recently as well, some lengthier ones. So if you haven't seen those, please, uh, please pop along. So uh, many, many thanks for all your support and I'll be back with another podcast very soon. Okay, take care now. Bye-bye.